For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is A Profile of the Grumbler. A Profile of the Grumbler. This is part two. Um, And Paul instructing us here in Philippians chapter two, but we're we're taking um, cue, if you will, from Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, as we consider this profile together, where Paul exhorts the, the believer, exhorts the Christian, that based upon the mercies of God, based upon those mercies poured out on undeserving sinners through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul essentially teaches us in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, that the only reasonable response of a grateful heart then is a life of complete consecration to God. How should we view the Christian life? How should we view our service to God? We should view the Christian life, our service to God, our service of worship, as Paul would say, in light of, in view of the mercies of God poured out upon us in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, based upon all that Jesus Christ has done for us, our reasonable response should be a life of entire consecration to God. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul exhorts us to present ourselves as a whole and continual burnt offering to God. That's what Paul means there by that sacrifice language, a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice, which Paul then regards as the only rational, reasonable, or logical service of worship that is consistent with all that has been lavished upon us in our union with Jesus Christ. To borrow language from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul would say that the love of Christ compels us. The love that God has shown us, the love that Jesus Christ has demonstrated toward us should compel us that if Christ has died for all of us, then all of us have died to sin and self in union with him. And he died for us all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but rather live for him who died for them and rose again. That's what the Christian life is, brothers and sisters. For all that Christ has done for us through the gospel, we then with grateful hearts consecrate ourselves to him, present ourselves as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to God. Now think with me. If you believe that Jesus Christ has truly set you free from the condemnation of the law, then you are free indeed. You are free indeed. If you believe what Paul has taught us about justification through faith alone in Christ alone through the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, then you believe that you have been set free from the condemnation of the law. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free. You're free. Free from the curse of the law. Free from the condemnation of the law. If the Son has made you free, then you are free indeed. Let me ask you the question. What is it that you want to do with that freedom? (laughs) What is it that you want? What do you want to do with that freedom? What will you do with that freedom? The heart of the genuine Christian is worship him. (laughs) Serve him. Love him. Obey him. Follow him. What are you going to do with that freedom that you have now? 
I'm going to use it to consecrate myself to him. He is my Lord. Look at all that he's done for me. I'm set free in him. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to obey him. In the, mind, in the heart and mind of Paul, Paul is saying, I'm going to bind myself to the horns of the altar and I'm going to consecrate the entirety of my being, the entirety of my person, all my faculties, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I am going to serve him. That's the heart of a Christian That's the heart of one who's been transformed by the gospel. The heart of one who understands all that they've been given through the gospel. All that they have in union with Jesus Christ. I want to live for him. I want to use every minute. I want to use every bit of my strength. And we're in the flesh, brothers and sisters. It's not easy to do that. We're still battling remaining sin and corruption. But isn't that the desire of your heart? Where is your treasure? Where's your hope? Where's your joy? We're not citizens of this kingdom. We're citizens of that kingdom, right? What do you want to do with that freedom? Paul would say, give it all to him. Consecrate it all to him. Present yourselves, your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is reasonable, isn't it? It's rational. That word means logical. It's logical to think in that way based on all that you've been given. If you understand the inheritance that is ours in him. And I'm not talking about riches. There certainly are going to be physical riches in eternity. I'm talking about him. He is our portion forever. He is our inheritance. If you think like that, if you think like Paul, then it's only reasonable. It's only logical. It's only rational to think, I'll give everything that I am in consecration to him. In offering that living and continual sacrifice to God, in offering yourself as a whole and continual burnt offering, in living no longer for ourselves, Paul exhorts us, listen, stop being conformed to the pattern of this present age. Stop allowing yourself to be pressed into the mold that this world wants wants to press you into. Stop allowing yourself to be conformed to that pattern of thinking, that pattern of acting. Stop being conformed to those worldly ideologies, but rather be renewed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter four, put off then, put off your former conduct, that old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed. Notice those lusts are deceitful. That's not reality. That's not truth. That's not who you are in union with Jesus Christ. Those lusts are deceitful. And Paul says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And then Paul gives us practical instructions there for how we're to do that. Ephesians chapter four, verse 25, practical instructions. How are we to do that, Paul? How are we to... Stop being conformed. Stop being pressed into the mold of this evil age. And how are we to be transformed by the renewing of our mind? Paul says, put away lying. Put off lying and let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Speak the truth. Pursue the truth. Understand truth. Put off sinful anger and deal with your righteous anger in a biblical manner. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not steal, but rather labor diligently and give generously. Let no corrupt word 
proceed out of your mouth. Stop letting corrupt words proceed out of your mouth. Only speak those words necessary to our mutual edification. That's how we practically do that. Paul gives a similar instruction in Romans chapter 12. We're going to get into that as we work through these chapters together, chapters 12 through 16. So it's in consideration then of Paul's framework that we are to put off grumbling. We're to put off complaining. We're to put off disputing. Philippians chapter 2 verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That's a high calling. Brothers and sisters, that's not an easy thing to do. Why? Because this world, this age, and we ourselves, we're honest with ourselves, are prone to complaints, prone to grumbling, prone to disputing. Paul says, do all things without complaining and disputing so that you may become blameless and harmless. In other words, if you complain and dispute, you're not blameless and you're not harmless, right? Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And brothers and sisters, we're to put on gratitude. We're to put on contentment. We're to put on joy and peace and patience and kindness, tender mercies, loving one another. We're to put on forgiveness As Christ has forgiven you, you also must do. There's going to be many, 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 many opportunities for you to take offense. If you're the type of person who easily takes offense, you can find offense in everything. What are we to do? We're to put on forgiveness. And just as you've been forgiven, we're to forgive our brother, forgive our sisters continually offering that sacrifice of praise to God, which is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, gratitude. It's in this way, Paul says, it's in this way that you may learn to discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That you may learn how to be wise rather than foolish by putting off grumbling and putting on gratitude. Absolutely by not being pressed into the pattern of this age, but rather being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Absolutely. You learn how to apply God's word. You learn to discern God's perfect will in your circumstances. You learn to be wise rather than foolish. You learn how to respond in wisdom rather than responding like an ignorant, foolish, brute beast. You are wise rather than foolish. You're understanding rather than ignorant. That you may judge with a righteous judgment, rather than judging what you do not understand. That you may judge according to God's word with a righteous judgment, rather than rushing to an unjust judgment. Do you see? That you may learn to discern what God's will is in your circumstances. That's Paul's instruction, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. As we learned last week, the Greek word used for grumbling or complaining in the New Testament is a word that refers to a sinful expression of displeasure. It's what grumbling, complaining is. It's a sinful expression of your displeasure. You're displeased with your husband. (laughs) You're displeased with your wife. You're displeased with the home. You're displeased with your children. You're displeased with your boss. You're displeased with the news. You're displeased with the weather. You're displeased. We get displeased, right? It's a sinful expression of displeasure. It's a faithless 
displeasure. It's when your displeasure, think with me now, it's when your displeasure flows from pride and self-interest rather than a displeasure that flows from humility and a selfless Godward interest. We're going to look at that antithetical perspective next week, okay? It is a sinful or a faithless displeasure that flows from and is driven by pride and self-interest rather than or in distinction from a displeasure, a Godward displeasure, a humble displeasure that flows out of humility and a Godward interest rather than a sinful, selfish interest. That pride, that self-interest that drives a sinful displeasure sounds like this. I should be treated in this way. I should be treated in that way. I'm not being treated the way I think I should be treated. I'm not being treated the way that I guess I deserve to be treated, right? I should be treated in this way. They should be treated in that way. We should be treated in this way. Things should be done this way and not done that way. And the complainer, what the complainer does, what the grumbler does, is he imposes his own standard. Remember, this is not a Godward self-interest. This is a prideful self-interest, not a Godward interest, but a prideful self-interest. He imposes his own standard in determining what is just and what is unjust. He imposes his own standard in determining what is right or wrong, good or bad, wise or foolish. And when circumstances do not meet with your expectations or what are, of what is right or wrong, good or bad, wise or foolish, then you grumble and you complain. You express a sinful or a faithless displeasure. The problem with the grumbler or the complainer in this is that he often believes that what he thinks is his standard is God's standard. <laughs> he often believes that he's right in applying that standard. He often believes that the standard he's applying is God's standard. And that grumbling and complaining, it's that grumbling and complaining that leads to strife and contention. Once taking root in the heart, it's not long before that ungodly pride, that ungodly self-interest then unleashes that complaint through that unruly member in your mouth. And rather than speaking wholesome words, which Paul says describes as necessary for our mutual edification, grumbling and complaining makes the object of your complaint your adversary and your brother or your spouse or your child or your boss becomes your enemy and you begin to grumble and complain against them. That's how complaining, brothers and sisters, gives birth to gossip. That's how complaining gives birth to slander, backbiting, tailbearing, discord, division. You're not going to complain about that person in their presence. You're not going to stand there and talk to a person with that person right here and grumble and complain about them with them standing right there. You're going to do that behind their back. Think of how many conversations the grumbler and the complainer has behind the back of someone that they're supposed to love. How those conversations take place. They don't grumble and complain in front of that person. And that's how grumbling and complaining leads to gossip. How grumbling and complaining leads to slander, backbiting, tailbearing, division, discord. Jude describes them as grumblers and complainers walking according to their own lusts. That's that prideful, self-interested 
displeasure, right? Grumblers and complainers who walk according to their own lusts, mouthing great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Do you hear about, do you hear what he did? Do you hear what was said? What did you think about that? I thought, right? What are they doing? Gaining advantage. Grumbling and complaining will turn you into a scoffer. It will turn you into a scoffer. Rather than demonstrating 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, if you think about that text with me, the complainer does not suffer long. The complainer rushes to judgment. He's not kind because he's not humble. He's being driven by his pride. So the grumbler, contra 1 Corinthians 13, ends up parading himself, puffed up, driven by his pride. He behaves rudely. The grumbler seeks his own interest. Rather than the interest of his brother, he would act entirely differently if he was seeking the interest of his brother. He's easily provoked, thinks evil of his brother. He's not rejoicing in the truth. He's not going to allow truth to change his mind. The grumbler simply is not someone you could describe as bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. So brothers and sisters, grumbling and complaining against your brother or sister is grossly unloving grossly unloving, grossly inconsistent with 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Ultimately, ultimately it's grossly ungrateful and unloving toward God, who is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. That's why Paul says, do all things without complaining or disputing. Jerry Bridges speaks of the complainer, the grumbler, And he speaks of them in terms of a judgmental or critical spirit. The Greek word that we introduced to you refers to a fault finder, someone who finds fault. So grumbling and complaining leads to this critical or judgmental spirit. Bridges said, it's often done under the guise of being zealous for what is right. It's obvious that within our conservative evangelical circles that there are myriads of opinions on everything from theology to conduct to lifestyle to politics. Everybody's got an opinion, right? Not only are there multiple opinions, but we usually assume that our opinion is correct and we equate our opinions with truth. What happens when you do that? You elevate your own opinions to the level of a conviction and then you elevate your own convictions to the level of biblical truth. And then you begin twisting scripture to justify those convictions. How many of you heard before, twist scripture in order to justify their opinion that you gotta wear a three-piece suit to church on Sunday, otherwise you're in sin. Ever heard of Sunday best? You gotta wear your Sunday best. What is that? That's a twisting of scripture. What about those who twist scripture to be a teetotaler, so to speak? When the Bible doesn't teach against, and I'm not here to support drinking alcohol, but I am here to support exactly what scripture says. And scripture doesn't say that drinking is a sin. Scripture says that drunkenness is a sin. But how many times, how often, brothers and sisters, do you hear someone who has elevated their own personal conviction to the level of biblical truth, then twist the scripture to justify their conviction? Bridges categorizes this all under a pitfalls associated with being a grumbler and complainer, being a judgmental or a critical spirit. Bridges, Bridges summarizes the problem. 
He says, stop trying to play God toward your fellow believers in Christ. God is not, God is the judge, not you. Amen. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing when we judge others whose preferences and practices are different from ours. Bridges said, stop trying to play God toward your fellow believers in Christ. God is the judge, not you. We are, when we do that, brothers and sisters, we're arrogating to ourselves a role that God has reserved for himself. We're taking upon ourselves a role that rightly belongs to God alone. Paul would say in Romans chapter 14, verse four, who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master, he stands or fall, falls. James says the same, James chapter four, who are you to judge your brother? In a church, this is where biblical submission comes in. Biblical love comes in, biblical deference, esteeming others more highly than, ourself, than ourselves. How do we deal biblically with a disagreement? We learn to love. We learn to submit. We learn to show deference. We learn to esteem others. These are all lessons that the Bible teaches us through difficulty with our own disagreements, our own opinions, our own preferences. We cannot give any quarter in our own heart. We cannot give any quarter in our own mind to grumbling or complaining. In particular, or more particularly, we cannot give any quarter to that grumbling or complaining that we do against our Christian brother, against our Christian sister. Who are you? Who am I to judge our brother? There are all manner of excuses that we make for it all manner of ways in which we justify ourselves in it, right? All manner of excuses. We must put it off. We must put it off. We must put on gratitude and love and forgiveness and humility. Contentment. So last week we saw grumbling and complaining can, in light of all this, destroy the peace and unity of a church. Grumbling and complaining can discredit will discredit our Christian witness. Grumbling and complaining can disrupt our, our Christian service to one another in the Lord's body. Ultimately, grumbling is an assault against the sovereignty of God, the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Not only will grumbling and complaining destroy a church, but grumbling and complaining will destroy your marriage. Grumbling and complaining will destroy your home. It will destroy relationships. It will ultimately destroy your soul. James says, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Is this something that we need to cohabitate with? That we need to, ah, oh, it's just a, it's not a bad sin. James says, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. <laughs> Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is not something to trifle with. We've seen the effects of it. It's not something to trifle with. This is very serious matter. We must put it off. If grumbling and complaining is a noxious poison, if grumbling and complaining is a contagion, then we must remove the contagion so that the body can be healthy. Amen? So in considering the profile of the grumbler, 
And considering that profile, it would be unwise for us to neglect the primary example that Scripture gives us of the grumbler, the primary example of grumbling and complaining given to us in the Bible. And for that, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's look at the Bible's primary example of grumbling and complaining, the primary profile that the Scriptures give us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I want to introduce this example by looking at this text together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul refers to their example in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers, now he's talking to a predominantly Gentile church in Corinth, and he's referring to Israel, the patriarchs, as our fathers. I find that interesting, right? The Old Testament is our book. They are our examples. The church is Old Testament and New Testament together, right? That all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, talking about Old Testament Israel. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, all were immersed in the same covenant experiences together. They all ate the same spiritual food, verse three. They all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Look at the blessings that had been lavished upon them. But verse five, with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Although God had lavished upon them such benefits, such blessings of his goodness, such blessings and benefits of his sovereign care, his sovereign provision for them, God, the Bible says, was not well pleased with them. Most of them there is a dramatic understatement. Of all the host of Israel, two men entered the promised land from that first generation. Two of them. How many were on the boat? Eight of them. <laughs> How many of them from that first generation entered the promised land? Two of them. The rest perished in the wilderness of Sinai. Their dead corpses littering the desert, as Paul said. Theirs was not a natural death. They didn't die of natural causes in the wilderness. Their death was God's sentence against grumbling rebels. Verse six. Now these things, Paul says, became our examples. In other words, these things are typological. That is amazing to me in the sovereignty of God, the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will, the one who fashions our days for us when as yet there were none of them. It's amazing to me. God ordains, determines, carries out in his providence all things that happen to point to spiritual realities, to, speak, to teach spiritual lessons. These things became our examples. In other words, the history of Israel is typological for us. They were living and acting and worshiping in ways that God had ordained for our own example. These events were ordained by God to convey spiritual lessons. So what is the lesson then that we're to learn from Old Testament Israel and their example of grumbling and complaining in the wilderness. These things became our examples, verse six, to the intent or for the purpose that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, that we should not set our hearts on evil. And verse seven, do not become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor, brothers and sisters, let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt 
Christ, as some of them also tempted him and were destroyed by serpents. All of those sins, terrible, awful sins, amen? Lust, idolatry, sexual immorality, tempting Christ like a son of Satan. Do you see? Verse 10, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Lest you're tempted to think of grumbling and complaining as being what Jerry Bridges would call a respectable sin (laughs) or a less important sin or a less harmful sin or a less bad sin. Grumbling and complaining are listed here with the worst of sins. And it receives the most severe punishment. This is not an insignificant sin, brothers and sisters. It is a mark of unbelief. And it is ultimately against God himself. It will ultimately bring God's judgment. Verse 11, all these things happened to them as examples. They were typological. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Lest we, brothers and sisters, fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now, incidentally, and by the way, that's how you're to read your Bible. Right? These things are typological. The Bible is full of, exa- not just examples, not just examples, but history that God has ordained to teach us a spiritual lesson. History, events, people, places, things that God has put in place in history, in redemptive history, to point to the person and work of Jesus Christ, to point to a New Testament, a new covenant understanding of God's redemptive plans and purposes. We have to read our Bible that way. It's not just isolated history that has no bearing on us. So let's look at that example then together. Let's look at that example together. Turn with me to Numbers 13. Numbers 13. Lest we fall according to the same example of disobedience, let us take to heart the example of Israel and let's apply it to our own hearts and minds as we consider the profile of the grumbler. Numbers 13. The nation of Israel is encamped at Kadesh Barnea. And they're on the precipice of going in and taking possession of the land that God has promised them. It's interesting in Numbers 13, they're not speaking of going in as a matter of conquest. They're speaking of going into the land as a matter of possession. Why is that? Because God has given it to them. God has given them the land. God has promised to their father Abraham that he's going to place those people, the people of the covenant, he's going to place them in that land. God has promised it to them. Okay? Although God has promised them the land, although God has said to them that it is a good land, that it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and although God has said he will go before them, he will fight their battles for them, we know from Deuteronomy chapter 1 that the children of Israel didn't necessarily take God at his word. And the children of Israel went to Moses, asking Moses to uh, to send in men to spy it out first. Matthew Henry said, how absurd uh, was it for them to send men to spy out a land which God himself had spied out for them? (laughs) God had spied it out for them. God had given it to them. But let's send some people of our own in (laughs) and spy it out. That's essentially what's going on. Chapter 13, verse 1, God is so gracious. God is patient. Verse one, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. 
So the Israelites chose men from among the tribes of Israel, 12 spies, and among those 12 spies were Joshua and Caleb. Verse 26, drop down to verse 26. Now those spies, they departed and they came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So when they went into the land, when they came back, uh, they brought grapes, pomegranates, and figs. The land truly was a land flowing with milk and honey. They brought back a cluster of grapes. They had to carry on a pole between two guys, right? A cluster of grapes. They had to carry on a pole. Truly a fruitful land, just as God had promised them that it was. God had already promised them. Verse 27, then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. They could not deny it. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this is the fruit. Look at this cluster of grapes we've brought back. Look at these pomegranates, these figs. It was as God had said. Verse 28, nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. We want no difficulty whatsoever. <laughs> the, Am- the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell on the mountains. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and also along the banks of the Jordan. They're scattered all over the place. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. Why did Caleb have to quiet the people? And Caleb said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are able to overcome it. Now that's faith, brothers and sisters, that's faith. That's not a blind faith. God had promised the land to them. Now, apparently the people were already beginning to murmur at the first sign of any adversity whatsoever. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. <gasps> the cities are fortified and very large. Oh, we, well, we can't do that. <laughs> Caleb had to quiet the people from before Moses. When all the people began to complain, Caleb stepped in. Caleb was a man of courage. Caleb was a man of faith. He also had spied out the land. Caleb was one among the 12. Caleb had also with his own eyeballs witnessed the fortified cities. He saw the sons of Anakim there. Why wouldn't they have listened to him? Why wouldn't they have listened to Caleb? He also was witness of those things. And yet Caleb responds in faith. The righteous are bold as a lion. Amen. The righteous are bold as a lion. But immediately, immediately, Caleb was overruled. He was overruled. Verse 31, the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. When Caleb was a man of faith, these are faithless. Even if that were true, are they stronger than God? Verse 32, And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Now, if the report if the report had been given purely on the basis of human understanding, if that report had been given 
solely on the basis of human capability, then at the very least, those 10 men would have been guilty of cowardice. We would have had to have charged them with cowardice. Israel commanded 600,000 men of war. Those who were able to bear the sword, 600,000 men. These Canaanites were dispersed all over the land. They weren't a combined coalesced army. They weren't unified. Caleb would have still been full of faith and Caleb still would have been right. Amen? But worse than being faithless cowards, the Bible brands them as unbelievers. Worse than being a faithless coward, the Bible brands them as unbelievers. It wasn't human strength, brothers and sisters. It wasn't human capability that they were relying on. Who were they relying on? They were relying on our sovereign, almighty God. God, who had manifest ev- manifested evidence of his own presence among them, his own provision for them, his own strength toward them as he destroyed Pharaoh and his army in the sea. If you thought for a moment, if you thought for a moment that the Canaanites, Canaanites were stronger than Israel, would you go so far as to say that they were stronger than Israel's God? Israel may have felt themselves to be incapable, but certainly God was not incapable. Without a sword drawn, God destroyed Pharaoh and his army. Besides that, besides all that, God had promised Abraham that he would put them in the land. By refusing to enter, the the Israelites were essentially saying, by grumbling and complaining about having to do this thing, the Israelites were essentially saying, not even God can make good on this plan. Not even God can do it. We can't see past our circumstances and God can't either. These circumstances are too difficult even for God to sort out. God is not capable of leading us. God is not capable of directing our steps. God is unable to direct our path. God is not able to see us through it. God is not able to protect us. God is not able to provide for us. We must take matters into our own hands. Let's, let, let's select a leader from among ourselves and let's go back to Egypt. That's what they said. But that grumbling and complaining wasn't only isolated, as you can see, to the 10 who came back from the land. It spread like a contagion. It spread like a virus among the people. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Chapter 14, verse 1. So at the report, the people already begin to grum- beginning to grumble and complain. By the way, this is not an isolated incident of grumbling and complaining. The people have been grumbling and complaining all along. Their grumbling and complaining started all the way back in Exodus when they were first coming out of Egypt. They grumbled and complained. Grumbling and complaining is a pattern. Grumbling and complaining is a habit of theirs. So this is not an isolated incident. As soon as they said, nevertheless, the grumbling and complaining certainly started and Caleb couldn't even quiet the people. So in verse, chapter 14, verse one, all the congregation then lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night. They wept and all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron were the earthly objects of their complaints. But notice, and the whole congregation said to them, only if we had died in the land of Egypt, or if we had only died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword? Who was their complaint ultimately against? It was ultimately against God. 
Matthew Henry said, jealousies and discontents spread like wildfire among the unthinking multitude. Amen. We see it in Israel. We see it today, don't we? Jealousies, discontents, grumbling, complaining, spread like wildfire among the unthinking multitude, among that faithless, grumbling, complaining multitude, who are, Henry says, easily taught to despise authority and to speak evil of dignitaries. Where does that lead you? It led the congregation to speak against Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron had said, shortly hereafter in number 16, who are we? Moses at once, uh, one time turned and said to the congregation, who is Aaron that you're going to complain against him? Who are we but the servants of our God? What are you doing complaining against us? Who are they ultimately complaining against? They were ultimately complaining against God. Jealousies and discontent spread like wildfire among the unthinking multitude who are easily taught to despise authority and to speak evil of dignitaries. There has to be an object to their complaints, right? Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Those are poor abused people, those poor oppressed people. Victims. So they said to one another, verse four, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. When Moses and Aaron could do nothing to quell the rebellion, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation, the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel saying, the land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. They attempted to reason with them. If the Lord delights in us, certainly he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only, please, verse nine, do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not Fear them. So pleas were made and the people were deaf to their pleas. You cannot reason with an unreasonable person. They only became more exasperated, more exasperated, more angry, more unreasonable. Verse 10, and all the congregation said to stone them with stones. They were ready to kill them. They were ready to kill them. And think with me, what evil had they done? What evil had they done? (laughs) This is simply one example of many, many examples in which the Israelites grumble and complain against God, against their brothers and against God. There were cities in Israel named after their complaining, right? Verse 26, drop down to verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I've heard their complaints with the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, God takes an oath against his own nature. (laughs) As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. That is called retributive justice. 
the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, all those who were old enough to bear the sword. Verse 36. Now the men of whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation complain against him. Notice those men who give the bad report, those men caused the whole congregation to complain against Moses by bringing a bad report of the land. Those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. That's God's judgment upon them, God's sentence upon them. But verse 38, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive of all the men who went to spy out the land. So in addition to being a soul-corrupting poison, grumbling and complaining is a leaven. It leavens your own heart and mind, leavens your own soul, but it leavens the body. It is a contagion. It spreads like a virus. Before you know it, it will infect everything. It infects everything. When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, The word there for corrupt, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. That word means contaminating. It refers to that which causes decay. Decay in yourself and decay in others. That's complaining. That's grumbling. It is that which causes decay. To decay in yourself and decay in others. It is a corrupt word. Not only is grumbling and complaining a noxious leaven, we learn from example here that grumbling and complaining quickly becomes pervasive. It becomes habitual. It leads to a critical spirit. Generally speaking, it's like Lay's potato chips. You can't just have one. You're going to take another. And you're going to take another. And you're going to take another, right? It cultivates a habit. Jerry Bridges, again, these grumblers look for and find fault with everything. They end up speaking in a disparaging manner and discouraging the hearts of the people. It becomes a habit. When the Israelites were in Egypt, they grumbled because they were in Egypt. When they were brought out of Egypt, they grumbled because they were out of Egypt. (laughs) They complained because they had nothing to eat. And when God gave them manna out of heaven... They complained because they had no meat, (laughs) right? God abundantly blesses the Israelites, abundantly blesses them. That is a demonstrative understatement. English language just fails. God abundantly blesses the Israelites and they find something else to complain about. He blesses them more and they find something else to complain about those grumbling and complaining Israelites. But what does that also say? You, you grumbling and complaining Israelite, me, I can often, to my shame, I am a grumbling and complaining Israelite. When one finger points at you, you got three point, right? We're grumbling and complaining Israelites. We're prone to have this heart. And the more, and the more, and the more that God lavishes blessing and goodness and kindness and love and forgiveness upon us, 
the more and the more that we're prone to complain about something else. It's shocking, isn't it? It is shocking. It's such a pervasive part of our fallen nature, our fallen thinking, our fallen hearts, our fallen minds. We're prone to complain. We think to ourselves sometimes, right? We think to ourselves, you know, well, if, if that's the complaint, well, if we accommodate them, well, we can, we can do something to accommodate them. We can do something to help them. This is their complaint. We can, we can make peace. But the problem is not the issue. The problem is not the thing that they're complaining about and grumbling about. The problem is the grumbling and the complaint. And there can be no quarter for that noxious, corrupt, poisonous leaven. We have to dig it out. We have to dig it out. We have to dig it out of our own heart. We have to dig it out of our church. We, can, we cannot allow quarter to that poison. The problem is not the circumstance. The problem is our grumbling and complaining. Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, these things became our examples for the purpose that we should not lust after evil as they also lusted and that we would not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor that we would become sexually immoral as some of them were. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor that we would tempt Christ as some of them also tempted him and were destroyed by serpents. Nor, brothers and sisters, that we would be grumblers and complainers as they were. Destroyed by the destroyer. All these things happened to them as examples to us. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We must break the habit. We must break the pattern. We must extricate ourselves from that pattern. We must not be a contagion. I can't let grumbling and complaining be a contagion in my own heart and mind. We cannot allow grumbling and complaining to be a contagion in our church. We see the damage that it does. We see the fruit that it produces. Stop being conformed to the pattern of this present evil age, which is full of grumblers and complainers. Stop being conformed to the pattern of their thinking, the pattern of their ideologies, the pattern of their victimhood. We can't play the victim, brothers and sisters. Stop being conformed into the pattern of this evil age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Put on tender mercies, put on kindness, put on forgiveness, put on love, put on patience, peace, gentleness, self-control. You notice, you notice, grumbling and complaining are nowhere listed in any fruit of the spirit list. (laughs) Because it doesn't come from the spirit. It comes from beneath. It comes from the pit. When we complain, we are acting like these faithless spies who grumbled against the Lord, gave a bad report, discouraging the hearts of the people. When we complain, that's what we're doing. People may not like it when you say that, but that's what you're doing. That's who you're acting like. If I grumble and complain, that's who I'm acting like. When we complain, we're acting like these faithless Israelites, that faithless congregation who 
despised God, who rebelled against God, who showed in their grumbling and complaining, showed contempt for all of the blessings, for all of the goodness and kindness that God had poured out on them. If grumbling and complaining produce the fruits of strife and contention, division and discord, then eliminating grumbling and complaining will tend to our peace and unity. Makes sense, doesn't it? If that is what leads to strife and contention, disputing, then eliminating grumbling, stop complaining, and that will tend to our peace and unity. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. Amen? If grumbling and complaining spreads like a contagion, then eliminating grumbling and complaining will stop the spread and purify the body. Goes without saying, doesn't it? If grumbling and complaining undermine your witness for Jesus Christ in this world, then the absence of grumbling and complaining is so counter to the pattern of this age that those who have put off complaining will shine as lights in the world. People are going to look at you and say, what is up with you? I don't hear any grumbling and complaining ever out of you. You are different. <laughs> Why? Because everybody else in this world grumbles and complains. You're going to look like lights shining in a dark place. Why? Because you've put off grumbling and complaining. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing so that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation that complains and disputes all the time, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You and I have to realize, brothers and sisters, that it's the condition of our heart that produces the fruit of our lips. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It is the condition of the heart that produces grumbling and complaining. It is not your circumstances. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not your home. It's not your boss. It's not your income. It's not your elders. It's not the church. It's not this circumstance or that circumstance. And it certainly isn't God. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The problem lies with you. The problem lies with me. Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson said this, a complaining or an arguing spirit is an expression of ingratitude toward God's providence and a spirit of lovelessness and pride toward others. It is a denial of grace, Ferguson says. It is working against salvation rather than working salvation out in every aspect of our lives. He's drawing that from Philippians chapter two, verse 12, I believe it is. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Ferguson says it's working against salvation when you grumble and complain, instead of working out salvation in every aspect of our lives. We therefore turn away from a spirit of complaint or dissatisfaction because it is so out of keeping with the spirit of his family. It is so out of keeping with one who has been blood bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. So out of keeping with the love, peace, patience, kindness, the tender mercies that we should show one another in the body of Christ, so out of keeping with the deference and the love that we should show one another, so out of keeping with the spirit of his family. That's not to be confused with godly correction. There's certainly a place for that. That's a Christian's responsibility, right? It's not to be confused with biblical lament. We live in a fallen, difficult world. We're gonna discuss that difference uh, next week. 
But grumbling and complaining, disputing, fault-finding must be something that we together continuously fight against. I've learned that lesson the hard way. These are things that we have to continuously talk about, continuously fight against. We have to continuously remind ourselves of them. We need to continuously bring them up before our remembrance. We must continuously fight against them. You may say, well, that's impossible. (laughs) That's impossible. Uh, Those who come up against this sin, this sin devours its enemies. Uh, It's far greater than I am. I see myself as a grasshopper in the sight of that sin. I certainly can't overcome it. That sin is so much stronger than I am. That may be true. (laughs) But we're not fighting alone, are we? We're not even the ones who are wielding strength in that fight. Ultimately, the Lord goes before us and the Lord is the one who fights our battles. And the Lord has promised to conform us into the image of his son. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you and he is working in you to do and to will according to his good pleasure. And we will, we will make progress in his strength, not in our own. We will overcome in his strength, not in our own. Amen? He who promised is faithful. We're going to discuss how when we consider the profile of the grateful, the profile of the content, of the contented. We'll talk about that when we get there. Hang in there with me. Let's continue to look at the profile of the grumbler. And brothers and sisters, let's labor together to honor the Lord, honor the Lord Jesus Christ in light of all that he's done, in light of the mercies of God. And let us put off grumbling and put on love, put on gratitude. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for your, your wisdom and your great power with which you have executed in your providence, your determination to raise up Israel as examples to us here, those upon whom the ends of the ages have come, examples to us to demonstrate to us, to manifest to us the dangers of complaining and grumbling. The profile of the grumbler. Help us, Lord, to present ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to our God by putting off grumbling and complaining, putting off disputing, putting on gratitude, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, tender mercies. Help us to do this for your glory. Help us to do this for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that we should no longer live for ourselves. Help us to do that for the sake of our own souls. Help us to do that for the sake of your body, the church, as we strive to live for you in a way that is pleasing to you, that is worthy of our calling, in a way that we shine as light in this dark age, that Christ might receive all the reward of his suffering, might be honored in all these things. We pray for your sake, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. 
Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.